Amen. He has been faithful and he continues to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you today, we are so grateful for you, for you have been faithful and you have provided for us over and over again. So often we take for granted exactly how good you have been and how many wonderful things you've done for us. The fact that we wake up every morning, that we have breath, that we have food on the table, a place to live. Lord, you have been so good. But even more than that, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And today we rejoice over the salvation that has been made possible through him. Thank you for being faithful as we have struggled, as we have de dealt with physical ailments, as we have dealt with family brokenness, as we have dealt with financial struggles. Lord, I thank you that no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, you have been faithful. Be with us now. There are needs that are represented here in this church, and we come before you recognizing that you are our greatest hope. And we cry out to you and just ask that your will would be done that you would work in our difficult days and allow that to be an opportunity for you to shine. Work in us that we may know your presence and that we may be able to testify to a broken world around us that there is hope in you. Again, we give you praise. Just ask that your will be done as we continue with the word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you today, and obviously you heard Jerry mention that it's a fifth Sunday, so that means the kids will stay in here with us, which is actually great because they get to hear the same word that you get to hear as well this morning. I don't know if you noticed, but we did our service, our order of service, a little bit different this morning. It's unusual for this to be the first time I've been up in front of you, but it is such a blessing to have other individuals who are involved in the leadership of our service I want to share with you today about something that I experienced growing up. I'm incredibly grateful for the home that I grew up in. It wasn't always a perfect home, but I've yet to find that perfect home. I'm also grateful to be able to say that it was a place that everyone felt welcome. It was a place where my friends could come over and they could hang out. Whether we were watching WrestleMania, which is what we did when we were kids, or we were just hanging out after school. In fact, it was such a welcome place that most of my friends would just walk in without even knocking, which sounds like a good deal, except I had one friend who was sporting a full beard at the age of 13. Imagine when this friend walks in the front door and my mom meets him for the very first time. It got pretty intense just for a moment. But the truth is that these guys were never a problem, especially in our home. The primary reason for that was that they knew that this was my mom's house and therefore we had to abide by my mom's rules. Now we might have done some pretty foolish things after we left the house, but when we were at the house, we knew who was in charge. It was my mom. Well, I begin here today because I want you to understand that God is the same way. So often we get caught up in our plans and us trying to work out the best possible scenario for ourselves, but the truth is that it is his house and therefore it is his rules. Now today's primary passage is going to be drawn from Matthew chapter 20 and I'll invite you, if you would, to turn to that passage. We're going to be in Matthew 20 verses one through 16. I want us to look at this passage from a slightly different perspective today. But as you turn there, 
Let me put this in its proper context for you. Jesus is speaking to a crowd when a rich man comes to Jesus and he asks him the question, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? What's so interesting about this man's question is that he apparently thinks that salvation is something that can be earned, as if I can do a certain thing and then I will receive this gift of eternal life. By the way, that was a works-based culture that they lived in, which makes sense that he would ask that kind of question. I think in some ways, even our culture today is still a works-based society. Well, Jesus answers the man's question by telling him to keep the commandments. The man affirmatively replies, well, I have kept all of them. Now, I don't want us to get too much off track here, but I've yet to actually find someone who has kept all of the commandments as this man claims to have done. But anyways, Jesus doesn't call him out for that. Apparently, he was a good guy. But then Jesus adds, one thing you still lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow. And you all know the story. This was too big of an ask for this guy. Was Jesus telling this guy that if he did enough good works, that he could have eternal life? I mean, he tells him what to do. Keep all of the commandments. Sell everything that you have. Was that the message, if you do enough good things, then you can have eternal life. And of course, the answer is no. I suggest that Jesus didn't really need this guy to sell everything that he had. What Jesus wanted was for this man, as well as the rest of the watching audience, to know that salvation is not something that you earn. He gave them tasks that were far too great. I told you I've never seen someone who was able to keep all of the commandments perfectly. Jesus tells them, if you can do it, salvation is yours. Jesus knows they can't. Jesus also knew the condition of this man's heart. This man was very wealthy. He had been blessed. So Jesus said, tell you what, you've kept all these other commandments. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Jesus knew that that man would not be able to accomplish what he needed. He literally gives him an impossible task. In fact, in that same conversation, the disciples who are watching all of this are alarmed because it is impossible. So they ask the question, well, what about us? I mean, we've left everything to follow you. Is that enough? And Jesus does promise them a reward, but it's not so much because of what they've done. It is because of his grace. And that was the whole point of this. It's not about what you can do, but it's about what God has done for you. I want you to keep that in mind as we read this passage this morning that immediately follows that conversation. So often we separate Bible stories by chapter or by section, but the reality is most of the time they're weaved together one feeding into the other. So you've got these people trying to figure out what can I do to inherit eternal life? And now Jesus is going to tell a story that is all about grace. I normally would try to break a passage down into smaller sections, 
But today I want to read the entire parable all at once. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, and it says, beginning in Matthew 20, verse 1, this. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard at noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. And he asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you have paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I, ha I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Now, I know we've probably all heard this passage many times. It's somewhat familiar to us. Remember what we talked about last week, just as I kind of get started here, a parable is typically a fictitious story, so it's not a real event that is taking place, but rather it is a fictitious story that is intended to drive home a point to the original audience. Last week, I reminded you that there was often a twist somewhere in the story just to keep the audience on their toes. And my guess is the idea that all of them got the same thing was a bit of a twist. I mean, you're talking about some who worked hard all day and some who worked for an hour. Man, they got to get compensated differently from one another. So there's a bit of a twist. And of course, Jesus will explain what that twist is about. But there are also often multiple message, messages hidden within these parables. So let's take a look at this particular story. By the way, this is the second message in this current series that is geared around stewardship. And you say, well, this isn't really about money. It is kind of, but it's not really about what you do with your money. I'll tell you already that the message is very clearly that everything we have comes from the Lord. Sometimes we forget that. We look at all the hours that we put in. We, we look at our gifts and our abilities and the things that we have learned throughout the years, the opportunities that are there. And sometimes we think, well, you know, I deserve what I get. I've worked hard for what I have. But what if everything you had actually came from the Lord? 
Those opportunities, he placed them in front of you. Those gifts and abilities, he placed them in front of you. The opportunity that you have to go out and work because you are strong or because you have the mental capacity to do something, God gave that to you. Everything you have is because of him. We have the responsibility to simply be faithful with it. So we start off with a wealthy landowner who gets up early in the morning looking for day laborers. He is the Messiah figure in this story, obviously. Actually, he'll end up going out to the marketplace to find workers a total of five times throughout the day. He starts out early in the morning. Then he returns a little bit later around the third hour, nine o'clock. Then again in the sixth hour and then the ninth hour and then finally the 11th hour. So Six o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, 12, three, again at five. It's a bit of an odd thing to us in our culture today. Most of us, we either have jobs or we don't. But we rarely are sitting out on the street corner wondering if we're going to get to work today. But that's not the way every other corner of the world works. I've been in Haiti on multiple occasions. It is a beautiful nation, but it is also an impoverished nation. It is filled with much corruption and ugliness. But there are also some amazingly great people in Haiti. There are three primary locations that we have stayed when we have been in Haiti. Our Wesleyan missionaries have a house in Port-au-Prince. It's where we stayed immediately after the earthquake took place many years ago. We have another workstation that is called the Ortlip Center. It's about halfway from Port-au-Prince to the island of Laganav, which is the third place that we often stay, where we actually have a hospital compound there on this small island of Laganav. Well, there's something that that's very interesting that happens every day when you're staying at the Wesleyan Hospital compound in Haiti. You see, our arrival on the island becomes big news. Word spreads that there is a missionary team that is staying there at the compound. And of course, sometimes it's because there are doctors and medical professionals who will be present, and perhaps you have a need that you've been waiting to have taken care of, and perhaps you need to come to the hospital at that time. But the other reason is that missionaries tend to bring money with them. The next morning, typically the very first morning that we are there, before the sun even rises, a crowd of people will begin to gather outside of the compound gate. And what are they gathering for? It's not just for medical treatment. They're gathering in hopes that there might be work for them that day. See, they're not lazy people. There's simply not a lot of opportunity. They're not unskilled people. In fact, they typically are very good at what they do. But so often there is no opportunity. But they want so much to be able to work that day. This was actually a very common thing in Jesus' day. People would gather from all walks of life, seeking for someone to hire them for that day. Some of those seeking such occupation back then would have been slaves that their masters would have tried to rent out for the day. 
These would be slaves who didn't have enough work on their master's property, and so the masters would try to pick up a little extra cash by renting them out. So in other words, these slaves are going to work. They're not even going to get to keep the money. Their master will. The rest of the group would have been a varied and sundry mix of humanity. Some of the people vying for work would be those who were unemployed, desperate to find work just to be able to feed their families and provide a little shelter. Others would include those who had just lost their land or their homes due to high taxes. Can you relate to the high taxes here? And therefore, they would be willing to do anything just to be able to scrape by. Many gathering would have been women and children who had lost their loved ones and didn't have somebody to provide for their needs. Finally, there would have been a group made up of those who had suffered from some type of disability, those who would have been recently released from prison, or those who were perhaps prostitutes. All of these various groups of individuals were seen as expendables in their society. These were the lowest of people. And all of these individuals would have made up the lowest rung of society. More often than not, they would suffer from various health issues, including malnutrition, chronic disease, or sometimes near-death starvation. Many of those who could not find any day work would then try to make their way to the temple and its surrounding areas in hope of being able to beg for money so that someone would provide for their need that day. You know, it's important to remember that ancient society had a very shallow safety net for those who had fallen on hard times. By our modern standards, the world was a very cruel world. It was a world in which it was not uncommon for dead bodies to lie along the side of the road because nobody really cared. It wasn't a family member, and therefore it wasn't a big deal. Someone had died of starvation. Well, they were probably sinners anyways. It was not uncommon to see whole families being forced to live outside with very little food, clothing, or shelter. A great deal of what we call human decency today is actually the result of the rise of Christianity. What happened was Christians believed that God had called them to make a difference in the lives of others. And when there was brokenness, they had to do something about it. I'll tell you, one of the greatest missionary arms of the church for the last couple centuries has been the Salvation Army. One of the primary roles of the Salvation Army was to meet the needs of those who were hurting in the community. Sometimes it was within a prison. Sometimes it was homeless individuals. It was the individuals who often had some type of addictive behavior. They set out to make a difference in the lives of other people, but that is not what you had as Jesus tells this story. When Jesus shared this parable, all those around him would have fully understood what was going on. The setting was that of a grape harvest. He says he has a vineyard, which means it is around the time of mid to late September, the Hebrew month of Tishrei. The owners of the vineyard knew that they only had a very, very short time to get their grapes harvested. 
before the rainy season would take place. That is why we see the landowner going back over and over again. Time was of the greatest essence. No doubt those who were listening to Jesus had watched this very scene happen time and time again. And perhaps some of them listening knew firsthand what it was like to be one of those day laborers. They knew what it was like to not really know if they were going to have any work. They too had suffered some type of devastating loss and found themselves in need of work to put food on their table, to clothe their family, and to keep a roof over their heads. Life back then was pretty much day to day. This is what I want you to catch first thing today. Just as the landowner had plenty of work for these laborers to do, we understand this morning that the Lord has plenty of work for us to do as well. Our God is on a worldwide mission to rescue and redeem this world. The rescue and redemption and restoration mission includes not only all of us humans, but all of creation as well. For all of creation has been adversely affected by the fall. We humans, of course, have suffered the greatest as we have to deal with sin and death. But the whole world is dying. The whole world around us is suffering. It is a world of chaos. Therefore, as part of God's great commission, we are called to go and make disciples. Disciples that will live out the life that Jesus' death and resurrection has made possible. Disciples that have repented of their sins, been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Disciples that then go out and do the work of God himself. Work that includes the healing of bodies and minds and souls within our world which of course means that God not only calls ministers and teachers, but doctors, nurses, carpenters, bankers, bakers, along with secretaries, managers, bus drivers. He calls people to raise animals, others to care for the environment, still others to provide food, shelter, and clothing to those living in our world. He calls grief counselors, law officers, and a million other occupations as well. In fact, let me challenge your way of thinking for just a moment. Far too often, we perceive the Great Commission. By the way, the Great Commission is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, where we're told to go ye therefore into all the world, proclaiming the gospel, to preach and baptize that Jesus Christ is Lord of all so that the world may be changed. Far too often, we perceive this great commission as being something that we fulfill within the four walls of the church. But a commissioning is actually a sending out, and it requires going. That means that we can't just do it within the four walls of the church. That means that in order to fulfill this calling, God is likely to send out people who aren't called just to be preachers and teachers. Remember last week, I talked about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us to be able to use to build up the kingdom, and sometimes that's here in the church. Sometimes it's out there. What if the gifts God is giving us aren't just for here, 
If you believe that God is calling this church to change this community, to become ambassadors to a fallen world around us, then maybe God will lay it on your heart to get out there and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Maybe God will call you to run for a public office. Maybe God will call you to get involved in the local recreation department, touching hundreds of families. Maybe God will call you to volunteer at a local fire department. We have volunteer fire departments around here all the time looking for people who would be willing to serve. The point is that there is work to be done and it's not all going to be inside the walls of the church. And just like the landowner who went out to get anyone and everyone, so too the Lord reaches out to get anyone and everyone. You look at the people around you. Are there some people that God works harder to get them? God desires that person more because he's a good guy already. No. The fact is, our master, the Lord himself, desires that all men and women would come to the point of repentance, that we all would be redeemed. He wants every one of us to be a part of that process. He wants us to do all that we can to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. The Lord did not abandon our earth after the fall or the flood. He is not ready to abandon it this morning either. Therefore, this morning, there is plenty of work for us to do in and through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The question is, will you do it? Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Are you willing to work for the harvest? God's invitation is for everyone this morning. The second thing that I want you to see today is that God shares graciously with everyone. Not only is everyone invited to come and join in God's mission, but like the landowner in this parable, everyone is graciously rewarded. This caused a bit of a problem as Jesus tells this story. In fact, if, I, if we are to be completely honest, I will admit that sometimes it makes me just a little bit uncomfortable as well. In verses 10 to 15, we have a little discussion that will take place. Those who had worked the longest, those who had shown up at six o'clock in the morning as the sun was rising and they worked all day, they somehow thought that they deserved more than those who had not worked so long. It's interesting that there's no complaint from anybody until the very last group shows up. You think about it, they begin paying those who showed up the latest. Those who got there at five o'clock in the evening, they get a full day's wage. It's probably much more than what they anticipated since they knew they took the whole morning off. Well, then the guys who showed up at three o'clock, they go out and they get their pay. It's the same amount that the guys got at five o'clock, but they're looking at it and thinking it's still more than what I expected because the reality is I didn't work all day. Again, I took all morning off. And the guys who came in at noon do the same thing. They get there and Wow, we might get more than what these guys got from the 3 o'clock crowd or the 5 o'clock crowd, but the reality is we still get more than what we expected all the way until the morning crew gets there. And then they get upset. Wait a second, that doesn't make sense. 
We deserve a bonus. We worked longer than they did. We put our hard work and effort into everything today. They no doubt picked more grapes. They were worse for wear because of it. They were tired. They were dirty. They were worn out. And I imagine they were hungry. I'm sure that there are many here this morning that might have some well-found sympathies for this group that came in last to receive their pay after working all day. You might have even had the same thing happen to you at some point or another. You may have experienced a time in which you thought that you had worked harder than anyone else, and yet you were not given any more than those around you. Or maybe even worse, maybe you were paid less than what they got. I remember as a college student, this was the reason I hated group projects. There were always those who put great effort into the project, while others were putting very little effort into the project. And then at the end of the day, everyone in the group got the same grade. Well, that's not fair. I mean, if I do A work, and then I get a C because somebody else was a slacker, I'm not going to be happy with that. But that's not really what the landowner is doing here, is it? In fact, what he's doing is the exact opposite. Instead of punishing everyone, he is generously blessing everyone beyond what they deserved. This story reminds me of the story of Ruth and Boaz, a true story from the Old Testament. Each day, Ruth would have to go out and she would glean in the fields to have enough grain to make her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, some food. When she was able to get a little more than what they would need for the day, she would either store some up, she would sell it, or sell the bread that she made so that later on when the grain season was gone, her and Naomi could still survive. The Bible tells us that one day, Boaz saw Ruth working as hard as she could, and he decided to treat her a little differently. He decided that he would, so to speak, fudge the normal rules. He told the workers to leave behind a little more grain so that Ruth could pick it up for herself and for Naomi. Boaz did that out of a heart of compassion and grace. It was out of this same type of heart of compassion and grace that we see this landowner blessing everybody, even though they didn't necessarily deserve it. It is out of this same type of heart of compassion and grace that our Lord rewards us today with forgiveness and salvation and with the infilling presence of his Holy Spirit. This passage has some definite spiritual overtones. It's not hard to see. We today have been graced to have worked in a far easier vineyard than those living years ago. Those like Polycarp. I know we don't talk about this guy very often. He's actually one of the early Christian believers. At the age of 86, he was tied to a post and burned. He might actually feel 
as if he deserves a greater piece of salvation than you and I. Think of guys like Peter, who was crucified upside down. And like Paul, who was beheaded, they might think that they deserve a greater piece of salvation than you and I, because we've not had to deal with those things. But then what about those like Noah, who were required to stay faithful for some 950 years? How does Paul's lifetime of some 80, 70 to 80 years stack up against that? What about Moses? who for 40 years had to put up with the whiniest bunch of people ever to walk the earth? What about Isaiah, who was told from the very beginning of his 50 to 60 year ministry that the people will not listen to you or heed your messages? Do they deserve a greater reward than you or I? It's an interesting idea. I think sometimes we look at all that we've done. And we almost think that we deserve better than someone else. But the truth is, we're way down on the list. Spiritually, we all start off the same. We are fallen human beings enslaved by sin. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, we can all still be the same. We can be rescued and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace is totally unfair from a human standpoint, but totally fair from a divine point of view. You and I did not die for the world. God did. So God gets to make the rules. His house, his rules. And whether you have to live a life of faithfulness for 950 years like Noah or just a few hours like the thief on the cross, then you will get the same everlasting reward. It's his rules because it's his kingdom. But you know, so often we forget that. I say we a lot. I forget that. This past Friday, I sat in the presidential inauguration at Southern Wesleyan University. We have a new president. And as I looked around, I saw some really great and what I would call important people. Obviously, I saw the new president. He is incredibly gifted, and I do believe that they hired the right person for that position. But beyond that, I also saw the head of our denomination. I saw district superintendents and local governing officials. I saw professors and other university presidents. I saw authors board members, and pastors of much larger congregations than this. And as I'm looking around at all these people, it suddenly hit me. God didn't call me to do any of those things. God called me to serve at Trinity with this group of people. You know, so often we have aspirations of what we want to be, We've already decided that God's going to move me from one position to the next, that I am constantly going to be moving to something bigger and better than where we are. But I want you to know that I am exactly where God called me to be. There is no reason to pursue something else. Maybe somewhere down the road, God says, I want you to do something in addition to that. But this 
is where God called me to be. I will add that I do feel like I was called at the beginning of the day, much like the workers who showed up at six o'clock in the morning. When I started as a youth pastor in our denomination, I was the youngest full-time pastor in the Wesleyan Church. I am nowhere near that today. I will continue to serve the Lord in this church with everything that I have, regardless of how long I do it. And if at the end of the day, I get nothing more than a well-done, good and faithful servant, then I will have received all the reward that I could ever hope for. His kingdom, his rules. I do want to contrast that for just a moment with a friend of mine. A little over a year ago, he started coaching recreation level football. By the way, he comes to this church, usually to the second service when he's been. He started coaching recreation level football. He did well. And generally, the kids and the parents loved him. Well, over the past year and a half, his journey has been incredible. First, he was contacted by the local middle school, Edwards Middle School. They offered him a position as a football coach. Then before the middle school's first game, he was contacted by a Division III college, Erskine College, who also offered him a coaching position. This guy had never coached before. And just a few weeks ago, he was offered a position with a major Division I college program, Wake Forest University. And that doesn't seem fair, just to be honest with you. I know others that have spent their entire adult life working to become a coach or some other prestigious position. Yet this guy shows up late to the game and is already achieving his goal. I want you to know today that God is a God of blessing. And he may choose to bless one with greater opportunities than another, but that's okay. It's his blessing to give. It's not as if you get to decide what God should give and who he should give it to. I share all of that with you to say that regardless of what time of day you were called into this journey, whether it was at six in the morning or five in the evening, there is an expectation that you will do your part, that you will give everything of yourself so that at the end of the day, the master can say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. If other people get the credit, if other people get all kinds of rewards, so be it. You just be faithful and let the, de the master determine what your gifts and rewards will look like. So I close with a word of encouragement to you today. First, you may never be the greatest or most accomplished individual in the world. You may not have done this for long, certainly not as long as others. But at the end of it all, God's grace allows you to receive the same reward as those spiritual studs that everyone else seeks to be like. You know, when Billy Graham died, do you know what his greeting was like when he got to heaven? 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you know what the Apostle Paul heard? Well done, good and faithful servant. One of the old saints from the church this morning, I was thinking about Martha Evett. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lois Wiggins. Well done, good and faithful servant. What do you expect to hear when your time comes? My hope is that all of us will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I got to tell you, there's a little bit of a contrast. We talked about doing here, but we talked at the beginning. This man asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to know it's not what you do that will give you eternal life, but because he has given you eternal life, you ought to be doing as an expression of thanksgiving. God, you have been so good to me. Let me honor you with all that I say and do. The reward that awaits us, not for our greatness, but for our faithfulness, is that answer. Well done, good and faithful servant. That will be enough. I don't know when that day will come for anyone in here, but I hope that that is what you strive for, simply to hear those words from him. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for your grace. But we don't deserve to be your servants, to work in your vineyard. We don't deserve any of the good things that you have given to us. But you've given them freely. Lord, I, I thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us to now work diligently in such a way that as the master you would say, I am proud of my workers. So that when that day comes, we will be able to hear just as those individuals I just mentioned heard, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I praise you for the many ways you bless us. You have provided for us over and over again. Sometimes we've been blessed far more than we ever could have deserved. Sometimes we felt like we got cheated somehow. But the truth is, your goodness is overwhelming. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the generosity we experience in this life. But more than that, thank you for the generosity that awaits us. Help us to live in response to that, celebrating you and all that you've given. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to know today that God has blessed you more than you could ever imagine. My hope is that you appreciate it in the way you live and the way you do everything else. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.